Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. And yes, you should have a certain level of flexibility. Yeah. Um, but if you haven't planned for that eventuality, like, you know, I, a lot of my clients when they first come to me, they say, oh, oh but when I travel, it's very hard um, to stay healthy. And I say, oh, how often do you travel? Where do you often travel to? Okay, well, let's create a plan, um, you know, and a system. Um, and it's that system for change that planning helps you create. And if you don't have it, I always say to people, it's not you that's failed, it's your system that's failed. And so, you know, if you fail to make a good system, then it's like you will really fail. So have a look at that system. So, so plan out three to five key barriers that are going to get in your way and start thinking about ways in which you can overcome those. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. My guest today is Dr. Heather McKee. She studied as a health behavior change and weight loss psychologist for 10 years and her mission is to offer an evidence-based sustainable alternative to an industry saturated with quick fixes and health fads. She works as a habit coach working one-to-one with clients as a behavior change specialist supporting businesses and designing and delivering in-person digital wellness programs for long-term adherence and positive health outcomes. Her passion is translating the evidence-based techniques into real-life practices to help people build the skills and the confidence they need to create lasting and enjoyable health habits. And this is something that really does come across in podcasts today. She's also published research internationally in leading academic journals, and she's been featured in a whole bunch of magazines, including Time, Huffington Post, The Daily Mail, and more. There is a lot of evidence-based safe dietary and lifestyle change that we as practitioners can be confidently discussing with our patients and this is something that we talk pragmatically and openly about today and I really think you're going to enjoy this. I cooked for Dr. Heather a delicious chickpea salad with za'atar, sumac, lemon, extra virgin olive oil. It was delicious and you can check it out on YouTube, the recipe and the, the video of me cooking it for her is all there. So make sure you go check it out on YouTube at thedoctorskitchen.com. Listen right to the end because there's going to be a summary of our conversation and how you can get in contact with Dr. Heather yourself. On to the podcast. Okay. 
Okay, so um, I'm going to be cooking for you uh, a very simple dish. Uh, we've got some, it's going to, I, you know, I haven't thought of a name for it. Uh, okay. So I'm just going to call it a, a Middle Eastern chickpea salad. Okay. Uh, it's going to be finely chopped spinach, some parsley. You don't have any issues with parsley? You work with parsley? I don't love it. You don't love it? I don't love it. Okay, fine. So I'm going to go easy on the parsley yeah. and then I'm going to go mint. You're oh, all right mint? Big fan. Okay, great. Yeah. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go heavy on the mint, easy on the parsley. Uh, spinach is going to be uh, sort of the main green we're going to be using anyway, so that's going to mellow all those other things. But we're going to go with za'atar, sumac, uh, some oregano, some pre-cooked chickpeas here that's just come from a can that I've drained, um, some lemons, give it some zing, plenty of olive oil, seasoning, and then bring it all together. Does that sound good? All right, I'll go. I'll yeah. go easy on the parsley. I'm okay. glad you said that now. I'm so honest. Like, I'm so sorry. No, 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 be honest because I know like people don't like coriander, or whatever. Yeah, so. no, love coriander. Ship it in. Like literally, <laughs> parsley is literally the only thing I don't like. <laughs> I'm like I eat everything. Dietary requirements doesn't love parsley. Okay, yeah. fine. No, perfect, perfect. So I'm going to chop away. In the meantime, Dr. McKee. Yes. I'll call you Heather, shall I? Yes. Yeah. Please, how awkward. Yeah. Tell us. <laughs> so tell okay. us about your uh, your background and stuff. And, and what kind of work you're doing? Yeah, great. Um, I started in sports science actually. Uh -huh. So my background isn't um, psychology; it's actually sports science. Okay. Um, so my first. I didn't realise that. Yeah. All right. Um, so my first degree was in Dublin, uh -huh. um, and I got into it. I was actually more interested in the health side, really, than the sports side. But kind of back then, back in the day. Um, back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because like sport was. You know, like nowadays, fitness is a sport. Yes. Like back then, it was just sport. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, or nothing. Yeah, like there, yeah. it wasn't really a thing. Like this makes me sound ancient, but like it wasn't a big thing to go to the gym like yes. it is now. It wasn't a cultural kind of yeah. thing. Um, I but completely they had, agree. Yeah. yeah, it's so weird that you say it because I haven't really thought about that, and I regard myself as a sporty person, but actually. The only sport I do is when I go bouldering or I play the occasional game of tennis, but really I'm just going to the, the gym. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, like, it's a valid sport. I mean, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. If darts can be a sport. You know, you know? That is true. That is really true. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, so like I'm, yeah, I'm fascinated by this movement into like mm. fitness as a, as a kind of sport in, its, mm. in itself. Um, but yeah, I kind of got into that because I was interested in the health side. So my research when I was there kind of was on mental health and exercise. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we looked at vulnerable men. So okay. men from low socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. um, men kind of, yeah, just from poorer backgrounds mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. don't regularly present at mental health services. Mm -hmm. And we designed an intervention to look at, you know, does group-based exercise okay. um, kind of buffer the effect over and above kind of normal exercise in the gym. Mm -hmm. um, and we kind of, the intervention then in terms of the group-based exercise was based on kind of CBT and everything else, but okay. mostly it was based on kind of social bonding and other key factors. And yeah, what we found was that it was, you know, as kind of hypothesized that it was going to be more, it was more effective. Uh -huh. And so actually that kind of social bonding, team building element um, was really, really strong. So it's mm -hmm. quite interesting because that, Someone went on to do their PhD in that, and that work got picked up by Mind then. Oh, really? Um, later on, yeah. Okay, so they've yeah, done yeah. a national um, campaign on that. So I'm very passionate about kind of, yeah, mental health as well as, you know, all the other stuff. Of course, um, yeah. But when I was there at, um, at DCU, um, 
I went, I worked in a metabolic syndrome clinic. Don't ask me how I got this job. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, dear. Um, and it was in a hospital and uh-huh. we were trying to support people with their diet and exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them were staff, some of them were patients. And it really frustrated me because, you know, we had like nutritionists, dietitians, yeah. and all the most amazing, like best support. Mm. And yet like people were just not making things stick. Really? Yeah. And it was just like, wow, like we, like, you know, we'd, I was such a nerd, like I had folders of different workouts. I'd like color coded them for people depending on like their mood or like their energy levels. Color coding. Oh, I'm so glad you said such that. Such a nerd yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> But like it wasn't happening. So one day I was like, right, I'm going to sit down with people and find out like what is, what's stopping them. They've got yeah. all these tools. Like, mm. and basically that's when I got completely hooked. I ended up sitting down with like 60 people mm. and just been like, what's going on? Like, yeah. what are the barriers? And that really to me was like, okay, I, this is the kind of thing I want to do. Like, uh-huh. I really want to understand like, you know, what's holding people back from uh-huh. actually being healthy and staying healthy. Yeah. Um, Although my mom and dad was like, there's no such job as that. You can't just have <laughs> chats with people. It's <laughs> a real job. What does your dad do? Yeah, he works in the, actually, both my mom and dad work in universities. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah rivals. And um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but interesting enough, that kind of got me, yeah, just really hooked and understanding more. So then I went to Loughborough University. Okay, um, and big I did, sporting university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've got um, a great exercise psychology focus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did kind of mainly kind of health promotion, exercise psychology, mm-hmm. did a lot of work on sedentary behavior. Okay. So my supervisor, Stuart Biddle, he does a lot on, it was like that early sedentary behavior work. And mm-hmm. um, so again, looking at like correlates of mental health, sedentary behavior and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it was like kind of sitting down and talking to the people was the part that I loved. Yeah. Um, so then fast forward, got accepted to a PhD in the University of Birmingham. Um, and, you know, what, that was on the psychology of weight loss. Uh-huh. Um, so it's quite interesting because this is one thing I saw, you know, a lot of people got really fired up about their health behaviors when it came to losing weight, yeah. you know, and a lot of people were really, a lot, for, for a lot of people, it was their primary motivator. Yeah, a huge motivator, I yeah. was gonna say, yeah. So yeah. interesting and like, yes, the only way that people really knew how to lose weight was through dieting. Mm. And yet like, you know, all the evidence shows that yeah. dieting is the most ineffective yeah. way mm-hmm. to lose weight. And in fact, it's the most effective way to gain weight long right, term. Right. Um, I, so, didn't know, I didn't realize that it's the most effective way to gain weight. Well, that's like very strongly put, but you know, yeah. there's there's a really good meta-analysis, so like a study of studies, mm-hmm. um, that shows that like basically at least two thirds of dieters regain any of the weight gotcha. they lost mm-hmm. and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, even the studies that they looked at were really biased towards the, the weight loss effect. Right, right. Um, and the problem is, it's, it's, people will lose weight in short term. Uh-huh. You know, we know that from the evidence base, but long term, they'll definitely regain. And the more diets you add in, the more mm-hmm. likely that they're going to regain more than their original weight. Right. Um, there was an interesting study they did on The Biggest Loser, you know, the yeah. TV show. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think and I know the study you're about yeah. to Yeah, yeah. Where they looked at their BMRs. Yeah, Like yeah. their basal metabolic rates. <laughs> yeah. And they'd gone to like, some of them were 750 or yeah. something crazy yeah. because yeah. of, um, yeah, that whole effect. Like what? what's, you probably know the word for it now. What's so, it? Adaptive so, thermogenesis, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so you essentially like your body goes into like a, a, a resilience mode yeah. where 
you know, it defends its weight set point, um, and it's a phenomenon that's quite well recognised. But um, just to clarify, the BMR is the basal metabolic yeah. rate, um, and the the interesting fact of that was uh, how it, it goes right down um, when you're losing weight. It's, yeah. it's incredible. So, but yeah, sorry, carry on. No, no, yeah. So, um, well, my research was kind of really looking at. So the way that, well, the reason I got into it is because they were like, well, actually, we're going to lose that. Look at how you lose weight without dieting. Uh-huh. So how we're going to look at the psychology behind weight loss and actually how do we support people to achieve their goals and stick on, stay on track long term. Mm. So like my passion is maintenance. Mm-hmm. Like I want to know, you know, how do we get someone engaged and keep okay. them engaged long term? Uh-huh. Like that's like, yeah, my love, like absolutely. But so the... The studies that we did originally, we looked at kind of goals. So mm-hmm. we looked at goal setting. We looked at what's quite interesting about this concept of goal dilution. Uh-huh. So you know, uh, New Year's comes around and you're like, right, I'm gonna save money. I'm yeah. gonna be nice to my spouse. I'm gonna exercise. <laughs> yeah. I'm never gonna eat sugar again. I might as well cut out coffee as well. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna be this whole new person. And like, the more goals you add in the more you dilute your effectiveness yes. long term. Yeah. Um, and so we were like looking at what are those factors that allow someone to manage, you know, a goal alongside so many other goals. Uh-huh. Um, and it's very, very difficult to do. And Absolutely. actually focusing on one is means that you're going to be a lot more effective. So actually cutting down and, you know, being really, really specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was quite interesting. So, you know, then we went on to look at well what what are the factors that make someone successful Uh at long-term weight maintenance Mm -hmm. um and we can kind of did um qualitative research looking at okay well what are the characteristics that make someone a maintainer Mm -hmm. versus people that actually lost a significant clinically significant amount of weight Mm -hmm. but then regained it over time um and yeah that was really fascinating because you know what came out was really that those that were maintainers like they had made a lifestyle choice. It had become part of their identity. It was who they are. They didn't look at it like a diet. You know, yeah. they didn't look at it like a short-term thing. They yeah. kind of seen it as, you know, it wasn't a finish line to be crossed. It mm. was kind of more of a lifestyle to be lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was absolutely fascinating. So we were able to kind of distill down some of the factors that were able, that were kind of supportive of people making those long-term changes. Okay. Um, and what were those factors? Um, so lots of different things, but because um, was this basically your paper in two thousand thirteen? No, so no, that oh, was that's uh, yeah. That's, there's another one. Oh right, <laughs> there's another one. Sorry, yeah, go on. A lot of it was because they didn't actually focus on weight as the outcome. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. And like that, that goes back to the whole lifestyle to be lived, and there's quite interesting, you know. In psychology, we talk a lot about intrinsic, extrinsic goals. Uh-huh. So, like, extrinsic goals are, you know, lose a certain amount of weight, run a certain time in a marathon, mm. you know, lift a certain amount of so kilograms amount. in the gym, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And mm-hmm. yes, we know that those are motivating, mm-hmm. but only in the short term. And the reason that they're only motivating in the short term is because, you know, they rely on those external extrinsic factors to keep you going. So like the Facebook likes or yeah. whatever else it is, yeah. you know, other people telling you well done. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, if you reach those goals, the joy of kind of getting there is kind of fleeting uh-huh. um, in, a, in a bit of a way. And also then you can put yourself under pressure to step it up. OK, let's go to the next level, to the next level. Right. Um, and when it comes to lifestyle behaviours, that is isn't always most effective okay but the interesting thing is on the flip side intrinsic goals 
Um, so those goals that are for personal significance or uh-huh. personal reasons. Um, and it's lovely, like intrinsic, I think in Latin, translates into goods for the soul. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's such a beautiful set. I had yeah. no idea that was a derivation. And that's exactly what it means. Like, it's like, there are those things that nourish you from within. Yeah. Um, and so people that were more intrinsically motivated, they do something because it's got a personal significance to them. They do it because it's kind of part of who they are. Uh-huh. It's their belief system. It's, you know, like why do something that's inconsistent with who you want to represent Absolutely, in the world? Absolutely, yeah. And those are the people that tend to be more successful because, mm. it, you know, when they get into the trenches and things start to go wrong, they can mm. kind of call on that you know, value goal that's part of who they are rather mm. than, you know, looking externally for getting that validation. They mm. can actually turn in internally. And that's what we found, you know, people that were most successful, they tended to internalize their goals more. Mm. And so we went on to actually then create an intervention around this and looked at, well, how can we maximize that? So we looked at um, just, we, we kind of ran two weight loss, weight loss maintenance groups. Mm-hmm. One that was based on diet and exercise advice and the other that was just based on these cognitive skills. Okay. Um, and it's quite interesting because we found that both groups lost the same amount of weight. Okay. But those with the cognitive skills, they didn't do any, they didn't make any dietary changes. They didn't make any physical activity changes. Really? And interestingly, they spiked in self-esteem and oh, kind amazing. of mindfulness and different kind of cognitive measures. Uh-huh. Um, and that was really interesting because then it kind of brought about this kind of idea of, oh, can we train people in these cognitive factors, in the factors that these successful maintainers have? Um, yeah. That's, that's amazing. And so so it, was there any arm looking at combining the two? So Yeah, well, that would have been of... the next step. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but I had, to, I had to finish the BAC. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, well, cool. actually, one thing we did go on to look at um, was one of the factors that kind of offset people on more on a day-to-day basis uh-huh. was giving in to temptation. Okay. And what we were really interested then was about, okay, well, why do people give in to temptation? What are the circumstances around it? Mm-hmm. And so we created this app um, where we looked at instances of kind of resistance to temptation, so um, non-lapses and laps when people gave in to temptation. Because we again we were trying to isolate well what differentiates those like the maintainers um from the non-maintainers and a lot of the non-maintainers said oh you know once i kind of went off track that was it you know yeah. and i you know and this happens for a lot of people like you know a lot of people like do really well mm. all week eat really you know well and then it gets thursday and mm. you know they've missed lunch and they see a snickers bar and they eat it yeah. and then they think oh the whole thing's ruined i yes. might as well just get delivery for the weekend, I'll start again on Monday. Yes. Um, whereas the maintainers didn't have that attitude. They kind of saw it as a bend in the road, but not the end of the road, uh-huh. you know? Um, and so we were like, well, what happens for these people? And what are the circumstances around that? Um, and it's quite interesting because we found that people were most tempted at certain times of the day. So it was like 3.30 and 8.30. 8.30 in the evening? Yeah. Interesting, okay. Yeah. And so 3.30... Um, and there was a number of different factors. It was like, were there um, influences in your environment? Uh-huh. Was it boredom? Mm-hmm. You know, was it fatigue? Mm-hmm. Was it stress? Um, and then at eight thirty, actually, the most the temptations that people most likely gave into were alcohol temptations. Okay. Um, people were better able to resist food actually temptations at that time of day than they were um, alcohol temptations. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but it was really interesting because we started to see these patterns in people about when they gave in to temptation most and why. Yeah. Um, and that was, I think that's interesting from an environmental point of view as well. It's like, can you look at your habits throughout the day? Because yeah. we think that, you know, when we give in to temptation that it's in isolation. Yes. But ultimately, it tends to be the same patterns that repeat, repeat, repeat. And one thing I always say to people is, why not keep a temptations diary, like just for a week? Look at when you're most tempted. Look at the factors why. Mm. And for a lot of people, it was just the same things. It was boredom. Yeah, or, you know, like wanting to procrastinate at work or Uh something like that. And actually, for some people, it was stress. And food became, you know, a distractor for that that stress. Um, And we'll probably go on to talk about it. But when we talk about the habit loop, you can see, you know, how that can have a negative effect over time. Um, But this was really interesting. So there was kind of two key concepts. It was like the training of people in kind of psychological techniques to help, you know, buffer um, or help maintain that ability to stay on track. And then also looking at, well, what helps, what or what, why people go off track and then how can we back solve for that and help them actually create support strategies to stop them going off track. Yeah, so making it very much personalized to their environment and actually, uh, a bit more intuitive for them beyond yeah. this intervention, I guess, yeah. isn't it? So if you know that what what your triggers are, then uh, you're going to instinctively be more aware, but also just make it part of your lifestyle rather than something that's quite rigid. Yeah. I mean, like for me, Sorry. when you were talking about uh, intrinsic and, and that kind of stuff, my kind of lifestyle of going to the gym first thing in the morning, um, trying to meditate and eating like hopefully delicious food or, and that's healthy <laughs> all the time, you know, isn't like a, a fixed sort of time period. I'm not sort of doing it for a, a defined um, outcome that's like time dependent or weight dependent or anything. Yeah. It's just, I just want to live a healthier lifestyle. Yeah. And I'm trying to promote that, but it's very hard to, yeah. to do that, isn't it? In a world which is kind of bombarding you with quick fixes and fads yeah. and how you should look, how how much weight you should weigh, yeah. all this kind of thing. So that I, that's fascinating. And I can't wait to go into a little okay. bit more detail yeah. about, you know, m- managing multiple goals. And, and that was another part of your yeah. research thing, like and how you, you actually uh, increase the successes of attaining those. So... I'm going to tell you about this food. (laughs) So so whilst you've been chatting, um, I've made a very simple uh, dish. Like I said, all I've done, sliced up some spinach, a little bit of parsley, not too much, Uh, some uh, some mint, uh, and then the dressing is za'atar, which is a a beautiful mixture of like cumin, sesame, uh, marjoram, a little bit more oregano, because I think it needs a little bit more dried oregano, some Mm. sumac, which is a dried um, uh, part of the rus plant, and a half a teaspoon of red chili because I don't want your nose to be streaming <laughs> <laughs> whilst, you're, whilst you're watching crying. this. Yeah, yeah, crying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so dig in. Awesome. Have a, have a taste. You. you can be genuine with your... Uh... Okay, my fee- critical feedback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so good. You like it? I love the lemon. Oh, good, mm. good. I like the lemon and the oregano. Yeah. Mm. Nice, good. Mm. Oh, I'm so glad. Mm. Well, let's take a break. Mm. We'll finish that. We'll have a little bit more frittata. Is this typically what you eat? Like, what, what, what's a typical sort of... Oh, yeah, zatar every day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of legumes. Uh-huh. Definitely. Yeah. Like, actually, last night I made one of my favorite salads. It was, like, um, pui lentils, oh, nice. mackerel, mm. 
oranges oh, and great. feta. Oh, but great flavor combinations. Yeah, there. but I don't spice it that okay. much. And that's where I'm missing out on, I think. I tell you what, yeah. like pure lentil, my favorite lentil, by yeah. the way. <laughs> I don't know about it, but my favorite lentil, yeah. pure lentil. Um, it goes so well with so many different spices because mm. otherwise it's quite bland on its own. Mm. I mean, that meal that you just described, you're getting saltiness from the mackerel, mm. you're getting uh, a little bit of sweetness from the orange, so it kind of marries quite well. But uh, I love using zatar and dhaka, Egyptian mm. dhaka is great. Um, but pure lentils go really well with like um, a, a slight hint of chili yeah. and cumin. I think it goes really so well. Good. So. Mm. Try that out. I will. I'll be adding it in. Thank uh, you. And if you want to listen to the rest of our conversation, uh, head over to iTunes, whatever your favorite podcast player is, and you can listen to the rest of our interesting chat. How was your lunch? Um, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can be honest. No, yeah. I loved it. Oh, good. I'm definitely going to go and do i'm gonna buy these immediately okay yeah the zatar and the sumac and the yeah and then i'm gonna go big on the lemons how many did you use i used just one but it was a pretty juicy lemon i was planning on using two yeah but actually i think that would have overpowered it um but that lemon and the sumac because they're quite bitter flavors they Mm. work really well together yeah and like you know all i did was chop up some parsley mint and some spinach and it completely transforms it yeah and tell me this then i'm gonna Mm. just ask you a question no go on there's a lot of kind of evidence on herbs, mm-hmm. isn't there? Mm-hmm. I but I'm not sure how sound the evidence is uh-huh. as of yet. But I've read some stuff on oregano mm-hmm. and yeah. tell me, do you know anything about this? So, so I'm a, the, one of the main things that attracted me to nutrition in mm-hmm. general um, and nutritional biochemistry was the evidence around sort of phytochemicals and yeah. just that there's just the wonder of, of phytochemicals. Um, there's some really interesting stuff actually coming out from Ulster University yeah. about phytochemicals, particularly berries and stuff, and how that potentially has an impact on cancer risk and yeah. um, uh, cardiovascular protection, all the rest of it. Um, so what you'll find in herbs and spices in particular are really concentrated sources of phytochemicals. Mm. So in oregano, we have rosmarinic acid, um, we have allicin and things like garlic mm. and onions, um, spinach, we have like... Um, as well as the traditional sort of um, ingredients like folate and vitamin yeah. K. Um, you'll have a whole host of different phytochemicals and brassica vegetables in particular, indoles, indole-3-carbonyl, sulfurophane. Um, so yeah, there's some, some wonderful evidence looking at what these potential chemicals can do uh, to cells. Mm. However, what we do lack is the evidence base around whether this is having a direct impact on health and whether we can okay. say it's caused you or not. Mm. That being said, flooding our plates with you know herbs and spices and you know simple kitchen herbs as well, like parsley and yeah. rosemary and all this stuff and stuff, I think is a, a real pragmatic approach to improving our health okay. um, without us being able to say definitively that this is causing x and that's something that you would never really be able to say without an rct or whatever and then that's before we even go into seasonality and how things are grown Mm. and whether organic versus conventional has a better profile these are super super nuanced questions to answer um but i i i'm just a huge fan of getting as many different spices as possible yeah yeah so yeah yeah, i know and i i also think um and and 
maybe you share this opinion because mm. it sounds like we were just eating now you, you're like a proper foodie mm. you know you're from right. east london you love like mm. going to the bakeries and all that kind of stuff um but uh you don't all just eat with your eyes and eat with your your, your taste uh, buds you also eat with your ears i find like when you go to a restaurant and you have the um either chef or the restaurateur or the maitre d and they come mm-hmm. over and they tell you about the food it's that sort of anticipation yeah. of food that just is such a wonderful experience and i think it's very much part of the eating process so yeah. the description that I put in my books, for example, mm. about how the food, you know, there's the emotional connection yeah. um, around the food as well as sort of the, the function of the food. Mm. And that's what I'm really, I'm really um, passionate about marrying the two rather than just being about function versus flavor. It's flavor and function. Yeah. Um, one of the best at this is, sorry, I'm going on a bit. Yeah, <laughs> Should we talk nice. about willpower? Yeah. Will yeah. um, one of the best at describing food I find is Nigella Lawson. Yeah. She's just got this. Oh, I was just thinking that when you said oh, it. Yeah. Yeah. This voluptuous way of like, yeah. you know, explaining and. Um, but do you find that they, so when food is described really well, mm. it's never healthy food. You know, <laughs> yeah. people aren't like, oh, the crunch of this carrot and the fry. You know, it, it doesn't like, it's always like this really rich and creamy sauce or a dessert or anything else. But, you know, what if we could, talk about healthy food you know in the same way like you said like create this 360 experience where it's not just taste and smell but like sound and everything else absolutely and that's sort of why um when i was writing the first and the second book i wanted to make it an immersive foodie experience but Mm. with the health edge so it's kind of like a nod to why we should be celebrating food and why food is such a special part of our existence whilst at the same time uh, being enthusiastic about the health benefits of yeah. food as well. And so, you know, if I can describe something as, you know, that the, the herbaceousness of the, the spice blend, mm-hmm. the aromas of the different ingredients that I'm putting together, the, um, the sort of like bitter compounds that you'll find in spinach and parsley and marrying that with, um, you know, some, some sweetness from whether that be a touch of honey or a touch of sugar mm. um, and, you know, the, the mellowness of the extra virgin olive oil, bring it all together. You know, these, these are things that we need to, yeah, <laughs> yeah, these are things that we need to appreciate. And yeah. I think we've, we've kind of lost our, our, um, our, our, our taste and appreciation for the, for the compounds and yeah. food in its whole form. Yeah. And it's more refined. And obviously that, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, um, we are drawn to sweet things and mm. we are, you know, we're rejectful of bitter compounds because you know, bitter in nature is, is typically alkaloids and they can be poisonous and, and sugar is something that is uh, sustaining and, mm. you know, it's associated with sugar, which we need to survive. Yeah. Um, so it's about sort of like being aware of that in our, uh, in, in our modern environments yeah. and, and, you know, sort of changing our, uh, what, what am I trying to say? Uh, so almost like uh, keeping that in mind yeah. when you know when we go to past yeah. convenience stores and past bakeries mm. and cinnabons and that kind of stuff. The whole like three sixty degree kind of experience of food. Absolutely, it's, it's quite interesting. It's, you know, as you talk about that, and so I recently trained in this kind of methodology. It's come out of the University of Plymouth. It's called functional imagery training. Okay, um, I don't know if you've heard of it. No, recently, no, they've no. had some of the best results in recent years in terms of actually um, impact on weight loss maintenance um, in terms of studies. And actually one of the ways that they start um, doing the, um, or actually introducing people to functional imagery is that they get them to image, you know, 
chopping a lemon on a table and the smell and the the look of the lemon and you know like starting to feel and um, the bitterness in their mouth before they even allow a single drop on, on your mouth and you know by the end of that kind of 90 second image you know you're dying for this lemon um, and it's really interesting because what they've shown is, you know, by helping people image, you know, their days um, and actually look at how they go out through their habits by looking at what all of those kind of vivid things that you feel. So your sight, sound, taste, smell, who is around, you know, your entire environment that actually can really enhance people's ability to then stick to their goals because it, it puts in a day to day kind of process way you know we talked about process and outcome Mm. goals and everything but it's like you know when you go home and you make this salad you know all of the joys of cooking it and you're chopping it and the whole thing can really then help people understand you know what health can look like in the context of their lives so Mm, absolutely i'm such a firm believer i'm so glad you brought that up because i feel that um if you're able to visualize something and you're able to um uh experience in a singular element so you know you're visualizing what this is actually going to lead you to achieve in the future there is something call it placebo effect if you Mm. if you want to but there is something in that that is very uh special and i think that definitely has some sort of health benefit in the future and like I immediately think of the law uh, of attraction, mm. uh, laws of attraction and yeah. stuff. And I, I immediately think of um, UFC fighters. I know we're taking a massive segue here, but uh, UFC fighters, so mixed martial arts fighters, and how rigid they are in their thinking that they are going to win. Oh, and yeah. they are, you know, super motivated and it gets them through grueling trailing that mm. everyone else would have given up at that point. Yeah. Um, and the same can be said of like, you know, Tour de France cyclists yeah. or anyone else. Or if you in, see um, Bruce Lee. his diaries like his mantras to himself and his affirmations and everything but also his visualization of when i'm there what i'm doing muhammad ali's another really good example yeah yeah Yeah. and you know i have affirmations that i do every single day i do uh, a mantra in the morning and i uh, do my gratitude journal that i was sharing uh, initially for 700 consecutive days And then I realized that, you know, I was kind of holding back and I actually wanted yeah. to be more of a private experience. So I yeah. still do it, but I do it to myself. And every now and then I share it yeah. for I feel it's warranted. Just remind other people, you know what, this is yeah. a very sort of uh, effective tool to put a mm. positive spin on, on your day that could yeah. otherwise be quite stressful. What's interesting about that though is like mm. you say, you know, it became for other people rather than for you. Yes. And so you needed to pull that back in again. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I think the, the, the reason why I set it out the reason why I set out to do it in the first place was to educate people yeah. and then share my experiences. And then I found actual benefit because it held me accountable mm. to it. So I had to do this every single day. Yeah. But then I sort of lost focus on it. And then mm. I kind of lost sight of it. And, you know, it, it became at the detriment of the exercise in yeah. itself. So I, I stopped sharing it, but I still do it. And I find it's one of the most effective tools. And I share it with my patients, actually, mm. as well. I always say, like, you know, um, it is something to 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 reframe your mindset mm. and to keep you focused on whatever goals you have, be it weight, be it, yeah. you know, condition, be it, you know, just striving through life. Mm. Um, yeah, I find it was a very effective thing. I, I love that you say that because it actually makes me think, weird, um, of this study um, <laughs> where they've shown that like, so, you know, we were talking about intrinsic motivation and when people are really in touch with their values around their health goals, um so when they presented people's values to them and then they presented food choices to them 
they were much more likely to choose a healthier choice mm -hmm. um, at the time of temptation because what they were doing was they were remembering, okay, actually, sorry, this is my value goal. Gotcha. Um, and what's going to be interesting, you know, what you say there about mantras, because, you know, one thing I would always suggest for people then is like, you know, but if you're trying to be healthy and you're trying to improve something, like why not create a mantra based on your value goal mm -hmm. and use that in your decision making? Mm -hmm. You know, you know, is this in line with someone who wants to be their healthiest self? Is yeah. this in line with someone who wants to be the best parent they could be? Mm -hmm. Is this in line with someone who's really, you know, driven towards this goal and actually having kind of a, a mantra that they say to themselves to help them with that decision making? makes their kind of goals more salient yes. throughout the day. So Absolutely. it can be a really useful technique. Absolutely. And mm. there was a book you were just about to mention, I think, just before we start recording. Yeah. Um, what was it called? Uh, oh, yeah. So that was about um, essentialism. So it's Greg McKeown. And what he talks about is, um, and it kind of goes back to the concept of goal dilution that we were talking about. You know, he, he draws like this sun and he says, you know, if you've got multiple kind of arrows coming out of it, you know, you can only make progress so much on all of those little multiple things but if you're focused on one specific thing and you start to narrow your focus in on that much more likely to be successful um and that comes kind of ties into the willpower principle yes, yeah. um because you know like again if we go back to the new year's resolution kind of no pain no gain mantra you know we all think you know the harder we try the better we're going to do and then actually when it comes to long-term change it's kind of the opposite mm -hmm. Um, and actually, you know, I always say, you know, it's better to go to the gym once a week for seven weeks than to go seven days in a row and never return because that's habit forming mm -hmm. and because it's repetitive and that's kind of what feeds into habits. And ultimately, like they say, willpower is like a muscle. So, for example, if I went to the gym and trained my bicep for the next seven days, you know, my right bicep, mm -hmm. by the end of the week, I couldn't pick up a cup of tea. You right. know, I'd be exhausted. Um, it's very important. Yeah, um, it's very important. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if I went and I did an adequate amount, I'd grow stronger over time. And your willpower is just like that. You can't just go hard or go home at it. You've got to look at making small micro changes over time. And I always say, you know, make those changes almost trip overable, like as in, What's the smallest goal you can make? What's the smallest change you can make towards that goal? Because that actually helps you build momentum over time because your confidence is there because you're like, well, that's so easy. I'm going to nail that this week, you know? And then next week you might want to, you know, extend that goal from one day to three days or whatever it is. And, you know, be careful about how much you kind of go up. But um, that's what kind of compounds learning. It breeds that repetition. Again, so habits are formed through context-dependent repetition. So do the same thing in the same environment multiple times, you know, and over time it will become habit-forming. And so if you can make things more likely to happen at the same time in the same environment, then it's more likely that that will become automatic over time. And the beautiful thing about it is that then it doesn't use your willpower anymore. And so you don't have to rely on willpower as a source of fuel. You've actually got the habit established. Um, I'd always say, um, one thing I say at my talks, I say one of my talks this week was, um, you know, I said, how many people have set a New Year's resolution and failed within the first week? It's like, we're all guilty of that. Um, I'm like, how many of us will be like, oh, I'll start again on Monday. We're all guilty of that. Um, and then I said, how many of us forgot to brush our teeth this morning? 
you know, and yes, maybe people don't want to put it in their hands, yeah. but, <laughs> but you know, it's a habit. And, yeah. and they find in the research that at least 40% of our day is made up of the habits that we have. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our life is essentially some of our habits, you know, how well you do at work, how yeah. much you sleep, mm-hmm. you know, um, what kind of parent you are, um, you know, how healthy you are. It's yeah. a sum of all these kind of tiny little habits that cumulatively compound to have an effect, you know, on your health and your happiness. This is actually really helpful for me mm. because I I have so many different things that I want to try and achieve mm. in the context of my next year. Okay. And I think the number of goals that I set myself is basically the determining factor by how unsuccessful I'm going to be. Mm. So if I can focus on one thing every single day, or whether it be a new habit, or whether it be some, something quite broad, I know I can achieve it. So point in case, I've started trying to use my left hand yeah. as much as possible, brushing my teeth with my left hand, writing uh, with my left hand, yeah. using my phone with my left hand. The reason is I had a recent podcast conversation with a, a, a neurosurgeon yeah. who talks about rewiring the brain using uh, methods like that. So yeah. using your, your non-dominant hand or um, experiencing things like uh, being more present with your sound and that kind mm. of stuff. So, so essentially harnessing the neural connections that we have to strengthen our overall cognitive power. There's really yeah. good evidence behind that. Since doing that, honestly, I've done it for weeks and I don't even think about it yeah. anymore. Like I write my affirmation in the morning yeah. with my left hand. It's one sentence. Yeah. How's your handwriting? Oh, it's, it's getting better. It was terrible. It was like a two-year-old's writing at the top. Yeah. But like, uh, it's getting better. But you know, um, it just becomes like the first thing I do in the morning yeah. now. Um, and that that habit is kind of like, it, it's it's stuck. Yeah. Um, and brushing my teeth with my left hand, it's stuck. So now it's, now I can move on to the next thing that I wanted to yeah. do, whether that be reducing my screen time yeah. or, you know, uh, doing my meditation for a little bit longer mm. in the day. Um, but I find like doing it one step at a time is yeah. great. If I try to do a whole bunch of things and I've done that in the past, yeah. that that was kind of like, you know, uh, uh, leading me to failure. Yeah. yeah. Is that something that you, and this is sort of translated yeah. in my clinical practice that I'll chat about in a sec, but yeah. is that something that you introduce in, in your clinic? Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. So, I kind of get people to answer five questions. Okay. So the first is, um, you know, why is it important to you to follow this goal? You know, why is it important to you to, you know, um, use your left hand more? You know, what does that give you in your life? And again, again, it comes back to your values and your values mantra and everything else. You know, actually this, you know, performing at my best is something that's most important to me. So um, the second question is I ask is, you know, what's the smallest change you can make today to go towards that? And the third question I ask is if you were to rate that small change that you've made for the next seven days. So people can do this now at home if they've got a habit in mind. Um, so first question, why is it important to you? Second question is what's the smallest change you can make over the next seven days? Third question is look at that small change and rate it on a scale of one to 10 with one being not at all possible and 10 being 100% possible that you can make that change over the next seven days. Mm-hmm. And I say to people, if it's anything less than a seven, make it easier okay. because we love setting ourselves up for failure. Yeah. We love being like, right, I'm going to do this every single day. And then Wednesday comes around and we're tired or we got pulled into something at work and it's yeah. not going to happen. So make it realistic. It's got to be above 70% uh-huh. likelihood to happen. The third that's four. The yeah. fourth thing <laughs> to say, I always say is, when and where are you going to perform that habit? And that goes back to, and there's a lot of research on this actually in the medical field, you know, when patients say when and where they're going to take their drugs, they're much more likely to be, to stick to it 
when exercises is a study in the Journal of Health Psychology, you know, people were 91% more likely to stick to their exercise when they define when and where they were going to carry it out. And that's something that's really important because it takes it from the esoteric and puts it into the day-to-day. Like I used to lecture in St. Mary's University in Twickenham. I used to always say to the students, you know, when and where are you going to do your assignments (laughs) this weekend? And, you know, they'd be like, oh, I'll do it on Saturday morning. Oh, but I can't do it at home because the football's on. And again, it goes back to that visualization that we're talking about. You know, you start to think, oh, actually, that might not work. And so you set it up in a way that's going to be supportive Mm -hmm. of your goals. Mm Um, And then the last thing kind of connects into that is, um, and it relates back to this concept called implementation intentions, which um, is basically having a plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say to my clients, my one-to-one clients, I always say, you know, plan everything. Plan when you're going to be in a bad mood, plan when you're traveling, plan, you know, so the daily emergencies, you know, don't become their emergencies. Like we talked, when we talked about the research and temptation, you know, we all have these same patterns day yeah. in, day out. And we think, oh, this is a one-off, but it's not necessarily a one-off. And so I say to them, well, what are all the things that are going to get in your way? List them out. Mm. Let's see about all those different things that are going to stop you from getting to that goal. Mm. Um, and what are you going to do about it? So if X happens, so if it starts raining when you want to go out for a run, you know, what are you going to do? What are your alternative options? What's available to you? You know, we live in the UK, so it will rain. It's raining right now, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it's August, not meant to rain. But, you know, like, you know, the, it's, it's like having a plan means that you're much more likely to follow through on your goal. And there's hundreds of studies on implementation intentions and how effective it is. But yet we let life kind of take us away, you know, down the river rather than being kind of quite intentional about Mm. you know it tends to be for most people there's three to five things that are going to get in the way and yes you should have a certain level of flexibility um but if you haven't planned for that eventuality like you know i a lot of my clients when they first come to me they say oh oh but when i travel it's very hard Mm. um to stay healthy and i say how often do you travel where do you often travel to okay well let's create a plan Mm. um you know in a system um and it's that system for change that planning helps you create. And if you don't have it, I always say to people, it's not you that's failed, mm-hmm. it's your system that's failed. Yeah. And so, you know, if you fail to make a good system, then it's likely that you will fail. So have a look at that system. So basically, you know, something that someone can ask themselves, if if X happens, then I'll do Y. So plan out three to five key barriers that are gonna get in your way and start thinking about ways in which you can overcome this. Yeah, there's so many things that I wanted to pull out from that. Like yeah. the whole scoring system, I think is super, super useful. So in clinic, I do a zero to 10 score with regards to motivation towards something, how likely they think they're going to be able to achieve it. And actually setting it out like that really reframes their mindset as to what the next best step is, like Mm. you said. So it's it's something that general practitioners are getting a little bit more uh, clued up about Mm. utilizing in clinic. It's a very good tool to kind of change into healthy behaviors. And it's one of these motivational interviewing techniques as well that um, we can talk a bit about. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, And the other thing is I'm recognizing a lot of what you just said into how I'm able to juggle a whole bunch of different things. So I often get comments on on social media, but also from my, my friends, about how on earth I'm able to like juggle podcasting, clinical work, starting to do point of care ultrasound work, as well as you know, the nonprofit, the charity, the travel, the second book and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, and, and it's because my Google diary has literally got everything like just partitioned out. Mm. 
to the point where like I will put in 30 minutes for breakfast in my in my diary like yeah. I know I'm going to be cooking breakfast from that time it sounds very rigid and mm. it's not like I j- jumped into that yeah because even when I was a kid I would uh, schedule when I was revising for my GCC yeah. exams it wouldn't be like a Google thing like I'm going to revise for exactly three hours it would be oh on this day I'm doing this particular subject yeah. so I've always had that sort of scheduling like yeah mindset what what you said there as well is important you know what the first step is as well so you're not just kind of you know saying oh i'm going to start revising then i'm going to revise this exact thing at this exact time and i probably intuitively thought about where i was going to be revising as well so i knew i was going to be at my desk in my room Mm. as a 14 year i knew that a lot or like you know um I go to the gym quite a lot with a with a friend of mine called Anita, who's been on the podcast a couple of times as well. And I know that's when I'm going to be like working out, and I yeah. can picture it. Like I'm going tomorrow in the morning. I can picture what it's going to feel like, the smell of the gym, mm. um, the the location, probably the weather is going yeah. to be pretty grey, and like the intensity of it, and just everything, the conversation. I can kind of so I know I, it's almost like I'm already there. It's yeah. become a habit, and it's gonna flow through regardless yeah. of, of what what happens so yeah. i find it fascinating yeah. I'm, so, I'm interested do you find that um i don't know in clinics you talk to your patients about what's going to get in the way you know what might stop them you know what i don't do that as much as i should do because mm. um i think part of sort of goal setting that i do would be you know uh what why hasn't this happened in the past what have mm. been your previous sort of barriers rather than sort of forecasting Mm. what do you think are going to be the barriers for this so perhaps that's a better way Mm. of trying to figure out what the barriers might be by essentially revisiting it from the past because it could be loads of things kids could be time could Mm. be you know a whole bunch of other things yeah and i think um you know understanding barriers is important as long as they're linked to how you overcome them so for example i think that often we're very very tied to barriers and saying oh I don't have time okay mm. you've just proved you know yeah. that that you can actually make time for things if you schedule them appropriately or whatever um but you know as long as you know okay well when in what circumstance do you not have time and how is that going to get in your way and what can you do to overcome it because I I was, so I was just working on this um exercise for um older populations this digital program and you know um the researchers behind it wanted to focus a lot on the barriers and I was like the barriers are important to recognize mm-hmm. but from a point of view of how are we going to overcome them yeah. because we can get stuck in that hole of you know like talking about barriers is like someone's already thinking about digging and you're handing them a shovel and you know they're going to keep on yeah. digging um until you start talking about well how do you get out of this hole gotcha. you know what's the next step mm-hmm. um you know and kind of that's where it's quite important to yeah. recognize barriers, but also recognize it from a point of view of, okay, these are things that might get in the way. Yeah. How do I overcome these? Gotcha. Yeah. Do you ever get, I'm really fascinated in this, do you ever get sort of negative comments about how your sort of practice is focused or predicated around weight loss? Mm. Um, do, do people have like, do people get their back up about that? Or is it something that, because I think it's very unfashionable these mm. days to talk about weight loss yeah. as, you know, the, a goal. But yeah. from the get-go from you the first thing you said about how you know you're looking at research and and that wasn't about the diet it was actually about how people thought about weight loss and what what their ultimate goals were yeah 
I love that you say that. So yes, <laughs> people are allergic to weight loss as a word. You know, a lot of people, a lot of companies, I do a lot of speaking in companies and they always say, okay, just don't mention weight loss, yeah. you know, when you come in or whatever. And I'm like, well, it's kind of what a lot of my research was about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, yeah. And I think it's because of what is kind of said about weight loss in the media. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, when it comes back to it, the reason actually... I um, started my business in the first place is because I was so frustrated mm. about what was in the media in yeah. terms of weight loss. I was so frustrated about other people's opinions on weight loss, how my friends thought, you know, really intelligent, um, you know, men and women. And yet they were like, oh no, I need to just like cut out carbs, mm. you know, or whatever. Um, and I'd spent, you know, like five, 10 years researching this and knew that anything to do with diets you know, it's going to cause regain, it's going to cause, you know, an unhealthy relationship with food. Um, and yet, you know, no one was talking about sensible things to do because it's not sexy, like, you know, to say, well, actually it's really small changes consistently over a long period of time, as opposed to, you know, like, you know, from this to this in yeah. six weeks. Yeah. And yet that is what is effective. Um, and yet it's, it's quite interesting because that's what got me into it. And and I do want to talk about weight loss yeah. and I want people to talk about it in a way that like, it's okay. So I find a lot with my male clients, you know, they're almost afraid. They come in and they say, I'm here for my health, you know. And, mm. um, and you know, when you start to unravel it, yeah, weight loss is one of their primary goals. They're almost afraid to say, yeah. you know, they want to lose weight and they do want to lose weight for their health. Mm. Um, but I definitely think it's something that we need to start talking about. And I got a bit of backlash from the research community when one of my studies got picked up and was put in the Daily Mail. Really? Um, and I was kind of saying, listen, like, you know what? The Daily Mail has a huge readership and it's actually about research translation. And so people are starting to pick up what's in there, you know, and it's come from an evidence-based source or whatever. I'm like, you know, it's good that they're actually taking an interest in this non-dietary, um, you know, weight loss approaches. And so, yeah, I think we should. I, I'm so glad that you brought that no, up. No, no, absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. I think even on the flip side, mm. um, practitioners uh, who see the, the most, so NHS GPs, prime example, there is so much evidence to, to suggest that we are very scared about bringing up the topic of weight yeah. for fear of giving misinformation, first of all, because mm. no one's trained in nutrition as to, to the point they should be. But also... Um, because of the taboo around it and yeah. the blame culture around yeah. it. Whereas actually, patients would be a lot more receptive to the idea if it's brought up by their practitioner, their mm. doctor. Um, even if, for argument's sake, you could argue, you know, that doctors aren't the best uh, position to talk about weight loss. I would argue the, the opposite. Yeah. I would say, you know, someone who's very trusting, who is perhaps the most trusted mm. out of this patient's life, should be the most appropriate yeah. to, to talk about it. But yeah, GPs are quite scared about uh, actually bringing up the topic. And it's because of, well, I think there's a whole bunch of factors mm. around it. But I think one of the main issues is um, for fear of isolating or, or for fear of making the, the patient look quite, um, uh, for, for fear of uh, making them appear quite, I think it's the blame culture. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, putting yeah. them out to be the cause of mm, whereas yeah. you know weight is such a um it it's such a a difficult topic to 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 fathom it's not just overeating as is simplified yeah. by yeah. the the media and is yeah. proven by a lot of the research that you've done yeah you know there's hundreds of different factors that impact whether someone's going to be overweight or not yeah 
And it's interesting as well because whilst I like am wanting to like you know release taboos about weight wanting weight and weight maintenance I don't want people to focus on weight as in a number on the scales Mm. um, because I think a lot of people when they talk about weight they think about weight from a you know your size basically clarifies whether you're not your like it's a moralization you know your self-esteem hangs in when you weigh yourself and you know there's so many other factors that go into weight and so you know I don't actually weigh any of my clients and I don't talk about you know their weight on the scales at all because I want it to be about the processes that they do I want them to fall in love with you know healthy habits and Uh enjoy those habits and also like one thing that I'm extremely passionate about is self-compassion and I see a lot in the weight loss industry where it's like your size is all that matters yeah you know it's like okay so you know how nice a person are you are how focused you are how driven everything's dependent on your size Mm -hmm. and you know your size isn't what matters you know it's how you feel in yourself each day and it's it's about kind of helping people understand that actually weight loss doesn't need to be punishing it doesn't need to be about deprivation Mm -hmm. and actually going back to one of my original studies you know, it was those that actually didn't feel deprived that did the best. Mm-hmm. It was those that didn't feel restricted that did the best. Yeah. Um, and that's because they had this love or enjoyment. So I always say one of the primary factors that's to do with long-term habit change mm-hmm. and is the most sticky factor mm-hmm. is enjoyment. Mm-hmm. If you can find joy in what you do in your like healthy habits, then you're much more likely to stick at them. So I always say to people, especially, you know, chronic dieters, when they come to me first, I'm like, right, Let's, let's make a list, all of the healthy things you enjoy doing. You know, anything at all. It could be the crunch of an apple. Yeah. It could be walking in the park. It could be, you know, playing with your grandchildren. Whatever it is, let's write it all down and let's talk about the joy of being healthy rather than the restriction, you know, that kind of lost mindset where, oh, I'm, what am I missing out on? You know, that whole thing. And actually look at the gains. Like look at, you know, all of the beautiful things that you get to enjoy about yeah. being healthy. And I'm very, very passionate about kind of you know shifting people's mindsets away from this kind of loss deprivation restriction mm-hmm. and more towards this like falling in love with their healthy habits. absolutely yeah and i think uh, there's something that we chatted about on the phone before um where failure should be thought of as your friend yeah. as like past failures can actually be thought of instead of it being something that uh is going to repeat itself mm. it's actually something that you, you've now got to turn into positive energy instead of it's something weighing you down is that how do you bring that up uh, with with patients that like failure yeah. being your your friend? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always say to my clients, I said I want you to fail. I'm like I'm going to just put it out there right now, and I'm uh-huh. like I want you to fail. And one of the conclusions of one of our studies was, you know, failure is success if you learn from it. Uh-huh. Um, and it goes back to, I suppose, a way to put this is, you know, um, Carol Dweck and all her like growth mindset mm-hmm. um, research and everything mm-hmm. else. When you fail, it's a learning opportunity. So, you know, if you found that, you know, you've stuck to your exercise goal, um, you know, for the last couple of weeks, but this week, you know, you've kind of gone off track. A lot of people will say, well, that's it. Obviously, exercise isn't for me. I'm a failure. I'm not. And they let it define them as opposed to actually being like, well, why didn't I exercise this week? Mm-hmm. Oh, I had a really tough weekend. It was very exhausting for me. Or I've got a knee injury right now. It's getting very difficult. Or actually, I'm not planning my exercise at the right time for mm-hmm. me. I'm not making this opportunity easy. Or maybe I've done too much mm-hmm. and I need to start spacing it out. Or maybe 
And this is what I always say to people, you know, don't go to a spin class if you hate spinning. Yeah, I know. You know? Like, it's the same thing I say with, with people who, who want to start running on the 1st of, of January, yeah. or the 1st week of January. Like, you, you don't like running, so yeah. why are you going running? Like, yeah. don't punish yourself for it. It's so true. And do the things that you enjoy, it becomes easier. And I think when it comes to our health goals, we just expect to kind of go in a straight line from A to B without any deviation. Mm. But the deviation is the learning. So every time you fail, you're learning more about yourself and you're being able to actually, you know, adjust, iterate and then change. Like, this is one of the reasons why I actually really like digital health behavior change. Okay because we're actually able to iterate as we go. We're like, okay, that didn't work, let's change it. You know, people don't seem to be responding well to that, let's change that. And um, it's the exact same with your habits. You know, actually, the more you fail, the more you're learning what's not working for you. And then you can look at that and say, okay, well, how do I actually, you know, minimize this and maximize what's working for me? So I say to people, you know, fail, fail hard, fail fast, and, you know, and examine all of those failures. What did I learn from that failure? And that's where the most success maintainers they were able to, to look back and say oh I had that because of that mm. and again they saw it as a blip they didn't let it define them exactly. and it comes back to what we were talking about a system failure yeah. it's not you that's failed as a person it's your system that's mm. failed so examine your system fix your system and move forward I see a lot of parallels with this and startup culture so I I'm obsessed with startup yeah. culture right now I listen to podcasts on it I'm part of the clinical entrepreneurship scheme with NHS innovations I'm networking with a whole bunch of other people starting up this stuff. And um, it's one of the things that they talk about quite openly in startup culture. It's that kind of like badge of honor to have failed and to mm. get up and start it again. And if you look at some of the best entrepreneurs out there, can, whatever you think of them, like Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos, they've all had significant failures in their, mm. in their trajectory. Um, and I was just looking up a book here that I've just finished reading. It's called The Obstacle is the Way, The yeah. Ancient Art of Turning Adversity into Success by Ryan Holiday, fantastic book. And it basically chronicles a whole bunch of different uh, ancient leaders, uh, all the way from Julius Caesar to mm. um, you know, a whole bunch of others, um, and uh, compares them to successful startups in the, uh, in the modern era, and why uh, the, the art of turning failure into something that actually is a positive increment on your success yeah. is something that we need to get used to and yeah. start celebrating. So, you know, I think it's, it. I don't want to trivialize it and to mm. say, oh, it's just a mindset thing because yeah. obviously there are huge, huge barriers to, to healthy behaviors and stuff. But I think that is part of a, a, an overall solution, a holistic solution, mm. rather than just looking at things in isolation. Yeah. You're so right. I actually, I love um, Ryan Holiday's got another book, Ego is the Enemy. I need to, I need to read that. Oh, so, so good. But yeah, like what you say about failure is quite interesting because it's like, you know, the whole January mindset again, you know, people are like, oh, I'm going to cook a salad for lunch every day. Yeah. But they, you know, they're like, oh, I have to make it perfect. It's all the whole perfectionist mindset, you know. And they're like, well, I have to make it perfect and I can't have too much cheese. I can't have this yeah. or whatever else. And, you know, after a week of those salads, you're just bored oh, yeah. out of your mind yeah. you know and that's why like you know your kind of recipes and making food fun and adding in mm. like the spicing and the herbs and everything else and having that variety mm. it gets people enjoying it and making it a pleasure mm. um, and they've shown that like half two versus one two goals you know goals that you feel like you should do you're not going to be able to follow them long term mm. whereas goals that you feel like are enjoyable personal choice and there's a certain element of fun in them those are the goals that you're going to stick to long term. Amazing. Yeah. When you were talking about failure, I thought about this podcast. Is it Sebastian Folks? 
and it's it's I'll check in I'll check in my phone but it's uh-huh. about failure okay. and it's like just people talking about their failures oh, um it won't like a podcasting award actually oh, um but uh yeah it's just about failure oh yeah brilliant. Okay. and like you say like yeah I definitely there's so many parallels between this and and business yes um yeah. which is really quite I always find it quite interesting because I'm like oh you're chasing this goal and then I'm like oh wait a second you're not focusing on the process yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know and yeah, I like exactly. to always trying to teach myself yeah um you know it's very important one of my primary values is to practice what you preach you know um but yeah it's interesting how in the startup culture you know that failure is like you know kind of now now a badge of honor and you know you learn and you grow and you reiterate and you try again and yet in health it's just like so associated with your own personal identity Mm. rather than growth yeah yeah difficult uh, I, I want to ask you this question, but I'm embarrassed to ask the question given okay. that we've talked about how you have to fall in love with the process of okay. things and actually, you know, instead of it being like a short, sharp snippets of yeah. information or little things to make you sticky. But um, what are the key things yeah. to make habits stick? Yeah. If there were like three things that you could say, Great. like, or to, to sort of project out to the audience that yeah. will get them in the mindset of keeping habits sticky, what, what would you... How would you sort of compress those? Great. Um, one, I would say, well, obviously enjoyment. So write your joy list, find those things that you enjoy. Gotcha. Um, two, I would say is um, environment. It's very, very difficult to follow healthy habits if your environment isn't supportive of it. So there's loads of studies that show, um, you know, if you keep unhealthy food on your desk, you know, you're more likely to be overweight. Um, if you, um, you know, They've even shown in studies where they've had um, bowls of M&Ms like, and they put them on people's desks versus six foot away and people eat, you know, like 250 calories more when it's on the desk versus, you know, if it's six foot away. And so think about your environment because your environment needs to be supportive. Mm-hmm. So even think about, you know, when you open the fridge, what's the first thing that you see when you open your fridge? Is it, you know, a load of beautiful red cherry tomatoes that you can just pick at if you wish? Or is it, you know... A big cake that's like there and accessible and you know if we're tired and we come home from work you know it's natural it's evolution principle we're going to preferentiate those high calorie foods so if we make those healthy foods the ones that we see first and we interact with first then we're more much more likely to um kind of live our life in line with our health goals so i'd say take a look at your environment look at is it supportive um and if it's not think about those things you can do to make it a little bit supportive can you you know put your gym gear in a visual place for yourself you know even you know there's a, an author actually i brought you his book because so i just absolutely love his oh, work and cool. um, and he talks about you know when we go and sit in our living room what are we facing what's the primary thing that's in that room uh-huh. and it's our tvs yeah, yeah. and our entire environment yeah. is set up to you know enable us to watch the tv yes. you know what happens if you rearrange that room so i'm not saying that tv is bad or we should stop watching tv yeah. or anything but yeah. it's just a good example of you know how our environment is set up to actually help us engage with something so just think about your environment and think about you know what are those things that you can do in your environment can you remove the sweet from sweets from your desk can you put maybe some nuts in your drawer instead you know think about those different things that you do because you know where our kind of attention goes our brain follows and so the more Often we see something unhealthy, the more likely we are to give into that temptation, the more likely we are to become depleted over the day, you know, become fatigued, maybe have an argument with a colleague, maybe we're stressed or whatever else. And we might have resisted, you know, the cake that's been on the table all day. But, you know, 
eventually, you know, we might give in. And it's because mm. it's there, it's in our environment. We might never have thought about wanting cake that day, yeah. only for the fact that it was actually just right there. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's just about making your environment as supportive as possible. And the last thing I would say is kindness. Mm-hmm. And I know this sounds a bit like woo-woo or strange, but... No, no, exactly yeah. what you mean. Yeah. So, like, it, I... A lot of people, when it comes to their goals, they feel like they need to punish themselves into success. And actually, you know, there's a lot of research coming out now from Chris and Neff and Tara Bratch and different people on actually, you know, the more compassionate people are more successful. You're less likely to procrastinate. You're more likely um, to have positive mental well-being. And you're actually more likely to stick to your exercise and health goals the more compassionate you are to yourself. So primary examples of really compassionate people would be like Mother Teresa and uh, Michelle Obama has been shown to have high compassion. Um, And it's quite interesting because we all think, oh, if we're kind to ourselves, we're just going to get into our PJs and watch Netflix um, all day. And, you know, if we truly ask ourselves, is that being kind? Um, But it's all about, you know, really being compassionate towards yourself and actually having compassion towards your goals. So if you have failed, you know, not coming down on yourself and saying, well, actually, you know, I didn't set myself up with the best chances there. I was actually just really tired today. And, you know, it's kind of almost, you get that differentiation where you're like, instead of when you feel tired, you're not you're not like, okay, well, I'll have 8 million coffees because that's what helped me push through. It's kind of like, maybe I need a rest. Yeah. Maybe I need a break. Maybe I need to go and step outside and get some air. Mm-hmm. And actually... You cultivate more intuition with yourself and more trust with yourself, being more compassionate. And so you start to truly understand what your needs are rather than kind of trying to mask them with external stuff. And so I'd say kindness is so important um, and being kind to yourself in that kind of goal journey. Absolutely. I love that. It's a joy, environment, kindness. And one thing that I think helps me cultivate uh, kindness to myself, because I think I'm probably on that on the fence of like someone beating themselves up and as a medic you have a very sort of alpha mentality where you just think you're invincible and actually Mm. when I got ill myself was kind of the first time I realized the vulnerability of my own health and how I need to be a lot kinder to myself but um one thing that really has helped me cultivate that is is meditation and not to sound too woo-woo but checking in with myself every for 10 minutes every day actually just recognizing Am I stressed? Am I tired? Am I sore? Am I physically fatigued? Am I mentally fatigued? Mm. What thoughts are going in through my mind? Because I think a lot of people think of meditation as you need to just remove everything from your head and just, you know, be still and have this sort of inner peace. Where actually, exactly, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, the more you meditate, the realize the more you realize that's just not going to happen. But what it what it does give you uh, a period of time to do is just recognize what's going on and checking in inside. Yeah. Um, and there's various practices you could do. You know, you could do a guided meditation. You could do a breathing meditation. You could do a sound one where you just like recognize how you don't have any control of the sounds that go into your brain and mm. and in your environment. But uh, I found that absolutely game changing when it comes to figuring out what I need to do on a daily basis and just uh, being more intuitive about uh, how I should be treating myself essentially. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that translates into like healthier behaviors and, and, and achieving my ultimate goals because yeah. you can't achieve them unless you're in the right frame of mind. And I love that you say that because actually there's a bit of research, you know, they call it self-compassion check-in where you ask yourself, you know, what are my needs right now? Uh-huh. You know, are they physiological? Like, is it that I'm actually just thirsty? 
Um, is it that I'm hungry? You know, why am I in such a bad mood? Yeah. Um, or maybe maybe you're actually hungry, you know? Um, and then is it emotional? You know, it, do I need to actually go talk to someone? Do I feel isolated, you yeah. know? Um, is it is it mental? Am I stressed? You know, do I need a break? Um, and actually by asking yourself these questions, you know, you're actually tuning into what your true needs are. And um, rather than trying to mask them by, okay, well actually I'll just go on Facebook and that will sort yeah. me out kind of thing. Um, and yeah, you're much more likely to then, you know, be better in tune with yourself, but actually cultivate habits that are going to last long term. I could have talked to Dr. Heather for hours. She is incredible, super passionate about the subject. I can see why her patients love her so much. We talked about how we navigate the modern landscape with our evolutionary mindset and physical attributes in mind. In particular, what she's interested in is finding out what your joy is, what sparks joy in your life, to quote Marie Kondo tailoring our environment to make sure that we are more likely to be successful in whatever our goals are whether they be health related or otherwise and the last thing i think is kindness practicing self-love kindness even though it sounds a bit woo it is seriously something that i think a lot of us need to practice more particularly those of us in professions which are which can be very very demanding and taking that time to be grateful and practicing gratitude is something that I'm a very big fan of as well and it's great to hear about some of the evidence base behind these interventions that I promote and the things that I practice myself. We talked about the controversy around psychology and weight loss and why she's actually rising above that and I think it's fantastic for Heather to talk openly about these things. You can find her at drheathermckee.co.uk she has her own podcast that I've actually been a guest on, and that's Bite Sized Habits. And you can email Dr. Heather at info at drheathermckee.co.uk. You can find all of this information and more at thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast. Subscribe to the newsletter for weekly recipes, content, and much more to help you live the healthiest, happiest life. Make sure you check out the recipe on YouTube. You won't regret it. It's a fantastic recipe and there's a lot more content there for you to enjoy too. I've linked to some of the research articles that we discussed on the podcast at thedoctorskitchen.com too. Have a fantastic day. Please leave us a five star if you enjoyed this podcast. It really does help spread the love and the message. Till next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. 
acast.com. <laughs>